The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. This is Wanda Wallace, your host for Out of the Comfort Zone, and welcome to the show. Today, we're continuing in our series about what it means to be strategic. With me today is Peter Wright. Now, Peter has had the wonderful chance of being in lots of different businesses. He's been in insurance with AIG and Zurich Insurance. He's been in oil and gas with BP. He's been in the cosmetic industry with Estee Lauder. He's been in beverages with Allied Demac. He's been in consumer goods with Unilever, and he's been in financial services with Merrill Lynch. So that uniquely qualifies him, in my mind, for understanding what strategic means from a broad range of perspectives. Now, in addition, I know that people that Peter has worked with have described him as sort of the ultimate strategic partner. So I believe that means that he's really good at understanding what drives the business. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. All right, so what do you think makes you such a great strategic partner? Um, Well, I think first and foremost, there's nothing inherently difficult about organizational tasks. Um, uh, what, what makes them difficult, as they're experienced, is uh, the fact that they obviously take place in the context of complexity and change and uncertainty. So when you're thinking about strategy, I think it's very much around the environment and the situation you find yourself in rather than the organizational tasks per se. Um, and I think where strategy has played out at its best in organizations I've been in it's in organizations which understand the environment in which they, they operate. They understand it well. Uh, they know what they can manage. Uh, they know what they have to take care of but don't necessarily have control over. And from that are able to devise a plan which has two elements to it. So one is the longer-term sustainability element, um, and I think the other is then the ability to break it down into usually something like 90-day periods which is manageable. Uh, you know, three-year strategic plans look great, but for the average guy in the organization, uh, they have to be able to break it down in a way that they can manage it on a short-term basis. It's an interesting one. Is the notion then that you balance the long-term, the three-year, the five-year plan objective with some smaller bites of what are we going to do in the next 90 days, in the next 90 days, in the next 90 days? Interesting idea. And I also like this notion that strategic is about understanding the environment, the parts you can control 
and the parts you can't and try to manage accordingly. Now, you have a methodology that you've used over the years for really coming to understand the core drivers of a business, and you call this organizational fingerprinting. Describe what that means. What is, how do you do this methodology? Well, in its simplest form, organizational fingerprinting, uh, as the name suggests, is, it's an organizational analysis model, which in the same way that individual human fingerprints are, uh, are different and unique, uh, it starts from the premise that so are organizations. So it's first and foremost based on the concept of contingency theory, i.e., in its simplest form, that no two organizations are the same. So there may well be uh, many aspects of an organization that look the same on paper, but it's always the informal, the intangible things that make it different. Organizational fin- fingerprinting's uh, origins lay back in the early 1980s when companies in general were struggling with organizational design. I was lucky enough to be in Unilever at the time, um, as you mentioned earlier. And just to give the listeners some idea, Unilever in those days was uh, over 450,000 employees. Um, It owned over 600 companies, and it sold or bought a company pretty much every month. So against that backdrop, it was critical uh, that we understand two things. One, the sheer variety of companies that Unilever had acquired up to that point, and more importantly, have a common methodology based on the concept of simplification, whereby we could go in and quickly look at organizations, draw from it those core elements which were similar, uh, and identify those elements that were different. So give me an example of the kind of elements that you would identify that would be simple. Just a couple of examples, not the details, just the specifics. Well, the model, um, if your listeners could see the model, the model's not remarkably different from any other organizational analysis model. So uh, it has um, boxes in it that look like uh, core values, um, core technology, and so on. Um, I think what's different about it is not so much the boxes as the process. Um, so um, in terms of the, bo- the simple, I'll give you one or two simple examples. One of the unusual boxes in it, uh, for instance, is a box called Dominant Coalition. Now, it's interesting that in a lot of organizational analysis models, um, people don't want to accept the fact that if you're going to try and change a business, there is actually a group of people who have an inherent desire to keep it the same. And it's always very interesting that when that box is bypassed, this not only uh, accepts that, but actively engages in that process. And the idea is basically that there's nothing wrong in certain people having a vested interest in an organization staying the same, uh, but you need to identify those people. Now, the word coalition in this instance is a loose one. Um, They don't necessarily all have uh, the same vested interest, but what holds them together is that whatever their motivation is, they want the status quo to to prevail. Um, And therefore, there's one very simple example of a situation where by simply addressing that up front and and preferably getting the dominant coalition both identified and on side, you change uh, the very nature of the analysis that subsequently follows. 
All right. So you do analyses of core elements of the business, what makes it unique, thing like the core values, the core technology, the dominant coalition, and others. But you say it's not the boxes so much as it is the process. So what's the process for doing organizational fingerprinting? Um, the process has eight stages to it, and the principle that underpins it is one of uh, what we call facilitated self-help. So once again, what makes it, the process different from a lot of organizational analysis models is that in, in those cases, the consulting company feels the need or indeed has a very direct um, instruction to come in and analyze the company and find a solution. Um, organizational fingerprinting works very differently from that. Organizational fingerprinting works on the premise that if you can help the senior manager and organization discover the solution themselves, they're much more likely to own it than having, an, uh, if you like, an answer imposed upon them. So the first process is a very simple one. We actually do what we call documentation appreciation. So in plain language, we ask the organization's senior managers to, to send us those documents they deem both important and informative. Now, having done this over many, many years, uh, you may be surprised to find the number of times that, for instance, a strategy document doesn't turn up in that package, which tells you immediately either this is an organization that either doesn't have one uh, or has one um, and doesn't hold a great deal of sway by it. Um, equally, you get documents which give you an early indication of some of the things the organization says and what they do are very different. Um, so recently we had an organization whose mantra was people are our most important asset, and we received an annual report of 280 pages, of which only two and a half covered people. And I think off the top of my head, there was something like 160 pages of financial reporting. So the first purpose is just to get a sense of that documentation that the senior management believe represents the organization. The second phase is what we literally call visual diagnosis. And as the name suggests, what we do is we go in and we just observe the organization. We don't ask any questions. Uh, it unsettles organizations on occasions, but there are many of us who believe that it's the purest form of analysis you can do. Uh, we simply watch the organization, and based on the information we've been given, we look to see whether what we've been told is what actually happens. The third stage, very simply, is the one that most organizational analysis models do, which is an interviewing process. Uh, what we try and do, which may be slightly different, is we interview both internally and externally. Uh, often, obviously, that takes some um, negotiation up front, but we'd like to look at things from customers, suppliers, regulators, you get this completely different perspective of an organization looking from the outside in. The fourth phase, very briefly, is what we call disconfirming evidence. So up till now, we have a barrage of information, uh, which by and large, we take at face value. This fourth stage is now deliberately designed to go back and now look at where the contradictions exist, where we're starting to see anomalies, where we're starting to see contradictions, where things basically just don't add up and make sense. Um, the fifth stage, very briefly, is the presentation of the findings. And it's not an accident that that, that presentation is actually called a map of uncertainty. And the analogy we use is one of holding up two mirrors to a senior organization uh, and its team, its leaders. 
So on the one hand, we say this is what you said you believed is happening in your organization, and this is what's actually happening. And this is where the skill in facilitation helps them, first of all, to understand there is a disconnect, uh, and secondly, obviously, to work with them to look at how you put those two things together. Um, the last two stages, very briefly, um, are probably also a departure from normal uh, processes. What we also do is um, we do a talent assessment. So before we leave the organization, we actually sit down and do some form of talent assessment to see whether or not the organization actually has the ability to do whatever it is that's been agreed should be the actions. And then last but not least, before we leave, we teach the organization the model. And the purpose of that is clearly uh, on a self-help basis. Um, it weans them off the reliance on consultants coming in uh, every six months. Most importantly, it gives them a common framework and a common language uh, for them to help themselves. So after this process, you have a picture. I'm imagining a mind map, in effect, of the key elements in an organization, not described the way we would from a functional perspective, but described from the way of things, how things actually get decided and done, what gets focused on, what doesn't get focused on, where the uh, buyers and movers and shakers are within the organization, all of those components, and a sense of this is what we said we wanted to do from our strategy, but this is how we're actually going about it. And then a dialogue around what does that mean and what do we want to do about it. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, as I said, I think the, the critical thing here is the more you can get the organization's senior management to be involved in this uh, from the point of view of understanding what you've just described, the much greater chance you have, I believe, to get them to own the solution. Okay, now, from an average person in, let's say, for example, in a functional role inside an organization, not leading the business, but either in a supporting role or in a functional role, this sounds like a very elaborate process. Can those groups use this kind of process or a version of that process to understand how the business is working? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in fact, the beauty of the model is it was de deliberately designed to be flexible. Um, what we knew from the early days in Unilever was we probably had designed or inherited just about every organizational design under the sun. So one of the deliberate um, planning points in the infrastructure of this model was to say it has to be flexible. So to give you some idea, uh, it's been used in Unilever, it's been used in Philips Electronics, in cosmetics companies like Estee Lauder, so very large global businesses. At the same time, it's been used in NGOs, in government departments, and it's been used on at least more than two occasions, I think, in doing an analysis on uh, small primary infant schools. So the model is infinitely flexible. More importantly, you can actually often do it within a business unit within an organization. Um, so back to my point about the environment, in when you're doing something like a business unit, a manufacturing unit, for instance, in a company, uh, often what will happen is that one of the stakeholders when you're doing that analysis is the head office itself. So you're in the rather interesting situation of trying to help, a, in some cases, a relatively small part of the business actually understand its role both in absolute terms and also in terms of 
in the context of the organization as a whole. Okay, so it can. I get this that it can be applied at many levels. Um, let me come back to something you said at the beginning, that being strategic is about understanding the environment in which you're operating in, knowing it very well, knowing what you can manage and what you can't manage, and then breaking that into both long-term components as well as 90-day bites, 90-day periods. If I tie all this together... Would you say that some a process like organizational fingerprinting is the best way for helping you understand the components of the environment, the components in the organization, and how all of those pieces fit together for actions? Well, the very first box in organizational fingerprinting is entitled environment. And um, to pick up on your point, I would, I would probably answer your question slightly differently. The way environment is explained in this model is uh, if you can picture three concentric circles. So the first circle is internal. In other words, that's the part of this business that is totally within the control of the senior managers of business in as much as anything is totally within the control of of an executive committee. Um, The external environment is the stuff way out on the outside, which will have some bearing on your business, but it is stuff that you basically can't control. So, uh, you know, to use very modern day examples, you know, the Greek crisis, um, climate change, that kind of thing. It's the piece in the middle, which we call the task environment, which is critical. So if you're going to understand strategy, the bit uh, we call task environment is actually the most critical piece of the three. Those are the pieces which you can partly influence, but you can't totally influence. So things like customers, regulators, suppliers, uh, depending on the level of organization, it might be your own head office. Um, But that's where real change takes place. What happens, in my experience, is when companies struggle, they do one of two things. They either become ostrich-like in as much as they only concentrate on the internal. Um, and it's a question of, you know, if I don't look outside the organization, it, it kind of doesn't exist. Um, or they don't really know what to do, and therefore they go uh, to the, the, the broader external environment. They have very interesting and esoteric discussions about things they can't actually control at all. Um, so strategy has to be about making things happen. For, it to, for things to happen, you first of all have to understand the relationship you have with the environment that you operate. And although you have to be, as I said earlier, aware of the bigger issues, you really got to concentrate on those things that you can affect in some way. Interesting. So we're going to take a break. Um, I like this notion, though, that to understand strategy is about to understand the things that you can control, the things you can't control, and influence a bunch of the stuff that you don't have pure control over in order to make stuff happen. Very interesting perspective. We've been talking with Peter Wright. Um, We will be back in just after the break. And when we come back, I wanted to have Peter give some specific examples about companies he's worked with and how this kind of analysis has led to better strategic understanding. We'll be right back. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. This is Wanda Wallace, your host. With me today is Peter Wright. Peter has had the illustrious experience of being in a broad range of industries from insurance to oil to cosmetics to beverages to consumer goods and therefore has seen a lot of different business models over time. Now, Peter and I have been talking about how you can go about understanding the real drivers of your business. And the point of understanding the real drivers is when you know that, you have a better sense of the strategic options, both the long-term options and the bite-sized 90 days. Now, just as we were taking a break, Peter said strategy is about making things happen. And that means that you need to be both aware of the bigger picture, the environment, the stuff that you can't control. You try to influence the things that are under your influence, such as the regulatory or the customers or sometimes the headquarters, and not get obsessed by the internal things that you can absolutely control. And this whole process we've been talking about organizational fingerprinting is ultimately about how do you understand those things that are not totally under your control and how do you influence them. So, Peter, sounds like a great concept, this notion of organizational fingerprinting. Can you give us an example? How does it actually work? And how has it helped a company from a strategic point of view? A few years ago, uh, we did a piece of work with a, a well-known um, European electronics business, and we were specifically asked to go in and talk to the senior management team at one of their manufacturing sites in the UK. Um, essentially, the, the challenge this team faced was twofold. One was that they were struggling to get um, funding from within the business uh, to do some of the innovation they believed very strongly in. And secondly, they, they seem not to have a great deal of control over 
uh, whenever this particular business uh, created new models of, in fact, it was televisions, um, this manufacturing site then pretty much had to dismantle its whole packaging lines and start again. Um, it became clear when we went through the process very quickly, particularly around the point about what they control and what they couldn't, that it was very unlikely that they were going to get any funding, certainly not at the level they wanted to. So uh, one of the things we did was to say to them, okay, if you want to be innovative, how is it possible for you to look at other ways? Um, long story short, what they did was they partnered with the engineering department of a local university. Um, so they extended what had traditionally been summer internships um, and essentially gave the engineering students at the university real-life hands-on experience uh, to supplement the, the theoretical knowledge that they were being taught at the university. Um, that had two very interesting outcomes. So one was it galvanized the way in which innovation could be seen because now you had a completely different set of eyes, young students who at one level really didn't understand the industry necessarily, but at another level were not encumbered by that industry knowledge that sometimes causes people to think in a very linear fashion. Um, and then essentially the second part of the issue actually came about by accident, and that often happens when you do these forms of analysis. Um, we had a young man at the university who was sat um, he was actually drawing the packing line. Um, in fact, at the end of the story, everyone remembers that nobody actually asked him why he was drawing the packing line. But essentially what he worked out um, was that every time they changed the televisions, um, they didn't actually have to change the packing line. He had sat quietly, read some documents, he'd written, he'd drawn the packing line, and he worked out uh, on the principle of Lego bricks that actually only about 20% of the packing line really needed to be changed, despite the fact that the whole line was dismantled. Um, and this guy very cleverly drew the whole packing line as if it were different colored Lego bricks. Long story short, uh, they put his idea into practice, so the next time a new television model was created, uh, they literally took out the Lego bricks and in inverted commas that he suggested. Um, they saved something like five days' worth of effort, um, downtime, which otherwise would have been lost to them, and clearly simplified the whole process of, of line changing. Now, this would never have come about, uh, ironically, if they'd managed to get money from the uh, headquarters um, because they probably wouldn't have extended the operation uh, to the university. Um, and that now, something like 15 years on, is still a formal um, arrangement that they have with the university. Uh, if the general manager is still there, he'll probably tell you it's the most inspired decision he made in the whole of the time he was the general manager. So how did the organizational fingerprinting make it clear to him that he had no options on getting funding and then suddenly had to get creative? Um, well, essentially, we went through all the options. So we started with, to go back to the environmental box, the only place he was going to get money in the conventional sense was from head office. He had tried just about every mechanism known to mankind, and it just wasn't going to work. We took him through then the, the, the model as if to say, okay, if you don't have money, what can you do? And more importantly, obviously, what can't you do? Uh, that, although it was a useful exercise to go through, the end product didn't really uh, help in any way because this was a senior team, and to be honest, they had done pretty much done that analysis. But sometimes doing that just reinforces that what you've done is the correct thing. 
I think what really came, uh, what was really different was that when we then went through the analysis from a different perspective and said, you know, think of yourselves as an independent unit, forget the head office, now what would you do? It was from that sort of brainstorming and that intervention that they started to think very differently. And I think it's illustrative of a lot of business organizations that belong to a larger unit that sometimes the answer lies in simply thinking of yourself as an independent unit. I mean, clearly there are some political ramifications of that. You need to be aware of that within your organization. But sometimes uh, the answer for these business units lies in acting as if you are independent within acceptable boundaries and coming up with a solution for yourself rather than having it imposed upon you from on high. And obviously you can imagine from a cultural point of view that's a highly empowering thought process. And not only do you get the the benefit of the mechanics, but you also change the general feeling and the mood of the people who are operating in the business unit. All right. So you use this analysis as a way to reframe your position vis-a-vis the business. So in this particular case, it was around treating the business unit as if it were independent and there was no headquarters office to bail them out or help them out or impose. And it's through that that you see the business in a different light. You see the drivers of the business and the opportunities. So can you give us a second story of how you've used organizational fingerprinting to help people get more strategic? Um, Yeah, so let's go to the other end. Uh, Back in 2008, um, I was actually in AIG when the financial crisis occurred. And obviously, uh, most of your listeners will know uh, the story of AIG in the broadest of terms. Uh, but here's a situation where you're required to do organizational fingerprinting in an environment uh, which is very fast-moving, very fast-paced, um, and interestingly, very hostile. So one of the things that companies often underestimate when they're going through change is that the external environment is very likely to be hostile uh, for a whole host of different reasons. So now not only do you have the challenge of how do you stay calm and think through the crises that you're faced with, but how do you also handle an, a hostile external environment? As an aside, by the way, one thing I will mention in that particular environment is that I think of all the things that have changed in this model in the last 25 years, the most dramatic change has been around the concept of communication. Um, 25 years ago, I think it was fair to say that businesses and certainly absolute governments tended to be able to control um, communication. In today's environment, that's clearly not the case. I mean, even if you're not interested in business, simply watching the Arab Spring uh, in Egypt and Tunisia and the like will have illustrated the power of social media and the ability for individuals to communicate to just about anybody. Um, so in the AIG instance, uh, back to what I said earlier, the first issue was just exactly what is this crisis and how big is it? Uh, and you can imagine if you can cast your mind back to 2008, that was a very fast-moving situation. The second issue is we can't do everything. So once you've worked out what the environment is in which you're operating, what are the two or three things that you absolutely have to do and you have to do them very quickly? Um, 
what you then find yourself doing is, because the pictures move very quickly, is back to my rolling 90-day scenario. At some point, you're going to have to work out what a two, three, or potentially longer period of solution is going to be to sort out the particular issue that AIG had. And obviously, in the broader sense, the financial crisis that was now beginning to affect large parts of the world. In the short term, uh, you know, we're talking about $120 billion business here and 120,000 people. You've got to devise a plan whereby the people themselves feel, first of all, that you are in control and that you are calm, um, that you don't allow the organization to go into shock, uh, that you satisfy the multiple stakeholders you will find yourself dealing with in a situation like that, and that you very quickly establish a plan uh, which has credibility and you can start that first sort of 90-day rolling process. All right. So I get the sense in, particularly in this last story, of how the environment, the task, and the um, internal controls make a difference. So if I replay this back, in the AIG example, you're looking very quickly at what are the internal things that you have control over, and it turns out to be relatively few. You look in the external environment in the things that you absolutely cannot control, and there's a whole host of them, including what's said in the press, communication, the hostility of the world against AIG at that moment in time. And then it's the rest of this that's in what you call the task environments, the things that you can begin to have influence, and that you start to put together your strategic plan, both in 90-day rolling cycles as well as in a longer-term plan on what you're going to do and how you're going to do it to make the right things happen. Is that a reasonable summary here? It is, absolutely. And I think what's implicit in that, even though it's not been stated, is that this model looks at how things get done as much as it does what gets done, okay. uh, which obviously raises the whole issue around culture. So many of your listeners will know, for instance, the, uh, the, the famous change curve, the Kubler-Ross curve around shock and denial and frustration. And obviously that model is devised initially, wasn't devised initially to explain how individuals actually respond. So obviously individuals, when they hear terrible news, go into, go into some form of shock or surprise. Then there's this sense of denial and disbelief and frustration, depression, and so on. And eventually when you survive that, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, you come out of it in terms of you know experimentation and decisions so on. What we've discovered over the years uh, is that organizations do exactly the same thing. Um, so when I use this model in organizations which um, have got, are in crises, organizations do exactly the same thing. And that tests very quickly the values and the culture of the organization. It's imperative, therefore, that you don't leave an organization in shock, denial, and frustration for any longer than it absolutely has to. Uh, clearly, you have to be certain enough that you know what it is you're about to do. Uh, so, for instance, one of the things a model highlights very quickly if you have a challenge is the difference between symptoms and cause. And often what happens in the spirit of trying to get on and being seen to do something is organizations, in my experience, end up chasing symptoms without fundamentally understanding what the root cause is. Um, but the, the sooner you can move from that shock, denial, and frustration level, the better. Um, otherwise, these, these issues will often just run away from you, and then they become exponentially more difficult to deal with. 
Okay, so so doing a detailed analysis of what's going on in the organization, both from the external environment, the internal task, and the internal things that you control, and all the other components that you've described in this organizational fingerprinting model, lets you begin to see the differences between the symptoms and the cause, so that you're tackling the real root causes and taking action on those causes. Yes. Okay. All right, so just for the quick quick one minute here, we have talked about the components of this model, including this whole environment, the external, the internal, and the task. We've talked about the core values. We've talked about the core technology. We've talked about the dominant coalition. Are there any other components that we want to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think the critical one, uh, and this is an exercise you can do very quickly in your organization, is what we call the key success factors. So when... Essentially, um, you know, people write books about strategy, but the question you're really asking is, what is it that we have to do either uniquely? Uh, that's getting more difficult to do, but if you can do something uniquely and it has commercial value, you will make money, or at least better than the competition. And if you, if you show a group of senior managers the classic sort of key success factors that help an organization create competitive advantage, so economy of scale, customer service, and the like, it's remarkable how, first of all, if you get them to answer the question separately and you say to them, what are the four things that define key success in your business, uh, please write them down without conferring with anybody. You, it's remarkable how many times you will get very little uh, commonality of view, even in a senior group that are the same. And more importantly, if you then say to them, um, you know, what's the chances of all of you have Putting, having put down the same four things, um, then the chances go down to almost zero. Uh, and that's such a fundamental question at the beginning of an analysis because, frankly, if the senior management team, as is often the case, cannot literally define how they create competitive advantage, it doesn't require a great deal of imagination to see how difficult it's going to be then to align an organization behind that. Okay. I like this notion. I think everybody lives with this symptom of feeling like you've got 17 priorities and not clear which one is important. But the notion of getting it down to four things that are the most most urgent to do sounds like a great component. All right. So we've got this notion that in order to really understand the organization, to be able to make things happen, I need to understand the environment, the core values, the core technology, the dominant coalition, and the key success factors. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask the question of, so we do all of this analysis, but how does it help us become, as individuals within the organization, more strategic? And we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. This is Wanda Wallace, your host for Out of the Comfort Zone. With me today is Peter Wright. We have been talking about this notion of organizational fingerprinting. How is it that you can do an analysis, a diagnostic, to understand what is truly unique about your organization? And the purpose for understanding that is to help you become more strategic in order to make things happen in the right orders and in the right ways. Now, as we've gone through this whole diagnostic, Peter has mentioned several things that he thinks need to be understood. First and foremost is the environment, both the external environment, the internal environment, the things that you need to influence but can't actually control, like regulations. There's the notion of the core values. There's the notion of the dominant coalition, who are the people that have the dominant say. And there's the notion of key success factors and getting that down to a small manageable component. We've also talked about the notion that you have the long-term game plan, but you also have 90-day rolling cycle. And then lastly, there's this notion of core uh, technology of the business. Now, Peter, how does this, if I'm sitting in HR or in IT or as one of the people within a business unit, how does this analysis help me be more strategic? Um, Well, critically, what the core technology box does is look at the conversion process. So whether it's a product or information depends on the industry. But it takes what the raw input is, looks at the conversion process, and shows what the uh, output is. Um, So let me use a real-life example. If you were to look at something like Estee Lauder, the cosmetics business, um, cosmetics relies very heavily on research and development, so that would be the first box. Uh, If you have research and development, you will have product development, followed by manufacturing, supply chain and distribution, and then marketing, retail operations, and sales. Now, that's what we would identify an organization like Estee Lauder as its core technology, or put slightly differently, that's how they make money. Now, what's remarkable to me over the years, it's become less surprising, I guess, the more I've seen it, is just how few people can actually describe that process to you. Um, I have a personal view that I think uh, in recent years we've got 
gone down the road of functional expertise, uh, and I think that's pretty obvious to people, the advantages you get from that. But I think on occasions it may have been at the expense of the old-fashioned general management concept because when I first started in this game, uh, general managers on the whole were pretty good at being able to explain a core technology. So a general manager in Estee Lauder from 25 years ago would have been able to explain not just the process that I've just explained, but would have explained it in great detail. Um, today, I'm not sure that's the case. I think it's particularly pertinent in functions um, who understand a narrow piece of it and understand their role in it, but wouldn't necessarily know what's happened prior to it arriving on their doorstep and certainly not necessarily understand what happens to it afterwards. And that's critical for two reasons. Um, so to, once again, use the Estee Lauder example. Marketing, not surprisingly, is the dominant um, function in something like cosmetics. And yet there are five steps before marketing gets involved. You can imagine that if you don't understand the whole process, you can waste an awful lot of time, money, and effort getting to the fifth stage in that process for marketing to turn around and say, it's the wrong color blue, uh, the skin cream, cream separates if you stand on a shelf for too long, and so on. Um, so there's there's an element of this which is just around efficiency. Um, but more importantly, obviously, if you're going to change an organization and if that impacts in any way on its core technology, not understanding that process becomes critical. And that's where I've seen, unfortunately, too often a situation where organizations have changed with the best of intent, but they haven't understood the core technology in the first place. And obviously, it makes it that much more difficult to change something successfully if you don't understand the start point from where you, where you originated. So the core technology then is a way of understanding what we bring into the door, into our business, whatever state it's in, raw materials or whatever, money, depending on the industry, what we do to it in a series of steps and how we spit that back out into the world and make money for it. But it's a matter of understanding those steps. That's the core technology. Now, in not some businesses... Not just a step, the value it brings as well. So if I can give you a, a short anecdote. Leonard Lauder, who was the chairman of the company when I belonged to it, um, had this wonderful uh, way of coming into businesses. He came into your office usually once a year, sometimes twice a year. He'd arrive at about 9 o'clock in the morning, um, completely unannounced. And the significance was that by 9 o'clock, clearly, you couldn't change your diary. It was set for the day. He would bring with him usually two ladies, because uh, it was women that bought cosmetics in those days. That balance has changed subsequently. Um, and these ladies turned out to be customers of the company. He'd actually asked them to volunteer from the customer focus groups that we tended to use. And essentially, after the introductions, uh, you were told that these two ladies were going to shadow you for the whole day. So in my case, I was the global head of HR. Um, they were not allowed to get involved in the business discussions, but they were allowed to ask questions of clarification. Um, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Leonard would invite you and the two ladies to go down to his office and have a cup of tea. And with you sat comfortably, he would ask these two ladies two things. First, what did Peter do all day? And secondly, as a customer of this business, do you think that added any value to what you pay with your hard-earned money when you buy Estee Lauder Cosmetics? Um, I can assure you that if you go through that process and the second question isn't particularly 
positive answer. You don't want to go through it more than once. Um, A, it's probably the most interesting and impactful customer-centric tactic that I've ever seen anybody use. But more importantly, it, it wasn't a gimmick. It was trying to... It was Leonard's way of trying to say to people, we don't operate in a bubble. We don't operate for the purposes of the convenience of the people that run this organization. And it's very easy, even in a core technology, to lose sight of the fact that there is an end customer. So not only do you have to understand the technology, but you actually have to understand it from the perspective of a customer and whether what you do each and every day adds real value to the end product. And his belief, by the way, was there was no such thing as customer facing functions as marketing and sales often described as being. As far as he was concerned, every function was a customer-facing function. All right. So to understand the core technology, and I'm building up to the notion about what it means to be strategic, it's about understanding the part of the business that you're in, the functional line or other, and what comes into you from somewhere else and what you do to it to add value and then what you pass on to the next group. So I have to have a series of a chain of events of what we bring into the company and what we send outside the company. And I know my place in that chain as well as the value I add to that chain. Absolutely. All right. In that case, then, we come back to a definition I've heard of being strategic from one of my clients, which is to say strategic is to understand what's coming into you and what's leaving you and influence the entire process. Not just do your bit, but the influence, the way it comes in and the way it leaves for the greater good. I would agree with that. I have a slightly different definition, but I think essentially it's saying the same thing. I mean, my essence of strategy, my understanding of strategy, is the ability of an organization to learn, not the ability to calculate competitive advantage at any one point in time. So, I mean, I think there are lots of reasons why you want to understand where you are uh, vis-a-vis your customers, sorry, your competitors, and in the industry as a whole. But the reality of strategy is... It's about learning and improving on a sustainable basis as opposed to being obsessed by taking competitive analysis at any one moment in time. Um, it's one of the reasons, and this is a, you know, just a personal thing I have, it's one of the reasons why I struggle to understand why strategy gets rewritten every 12 months. Um, I mean, I can see how it gets amended and updated. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but strategy doesn't, in my view, and in, in my experience, naturally fit into a 12-month cycle. Um, So as long as an organization is constantly learning and improving, I don't think it has a time scale as long as uh, it makes sense within your industry. So having been, for instance, in the oil and energy business, some of the strategic workforce planning that gets done in oil and energy is six, seven, eight years out because of the nature of the industry. If you don't plan that far out, you can't react in time. In other industries, I'm perfectly happy to accept it's a much shorter time scale than that. All right. So if I take your definition of the to be strategic is the ability to learn and to learn where you are within the organization, to learn the value that you're adding, to have the influence on the components that are coming into you and going out of you, to understand the parts that you do control, the parts that you can never control, they're just external environment, and to influence the rest of the bits. 
I get the sense that when you can get a whole picture of how all of that fits together, you are much smarter in your strategic choices about what you do and how you add value on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. And and just at the risk of being pedantic, the one word I would add is, uh, I think, a continuous pursuit for simplification. Um, one of the reasons, going back to our earlier conversation, why we only allow four key success factors is the fact that when organizations struggle, what tends to happen is they just keep adding key success factors. And once you're up at around seven, eight, nine, or 10, the chances of you being able to align an organization to achieve anything when you're trying to create 10 key success factors as a competitive advantage are obviously limited in the extreme. So underpinning your summary, which is an excellent one, is this idea that you're also constantly striving to try and simplify processes where you can. All right. So, Peter, I take three things from the discussion today. One is that to be strategic is to have the ability to learn. Number two is to understand that where you add value in the sequence of things that are in the um, beginning to end cycle of the business. And number three, I think the really outstanding one is this notion of there's the external environment, there's the internal pieces I can control, and there's a bunch of stuff that I just have to influence as best I can. Seeing that whole picture is what it means to be strategic. And of course, always for the eye of simplifying, not complexifying. It's fabulous. Peter, thank you for being with us today. That was great discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Um, we'll, next week, we're going to continue in this series of what it means to be strategic. And in that particular segment, what we're going to do is to take a look from an executive within a company and get the perspective of what they wish people were doing within the company to be more strategic, how they think about strategic planning and what you can do in being strategic. strategic. So join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 